If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 20, Luke 20, and we'll be in verses 27 through 40 this morning. So Luke chapter 20. I was thinking about this question, are you the world's foremost authority on anything? <laughs> maybe not the world's, are you, um, maybe within your circle of friends, are you the authority on a certain subject or topic, or maybe a... At work, if anyone has a question about some specific thing, they're going to to come to you. In our house, Andrea is the authority on where everything is. So if something's lost and the kids say, where is it at? I say, I don't know. Ask your mom. <laughs> and so she usually knows where it's, at, where it's at. But different people have different authorities. I was thinking about in our church, who's the authority? Who's the authority on nursing? We could have a brawl in here. There's so many nurses, right? Um, you know, who's the authority in that area? Um Different people have different realms of authority. Um, you know, John's the authority on used cars, right? At least in this church, probably. Um, anyone here know about clay tennis courts? Jake's the authority on clay tennis courts here. Uh, Trevor's the authority, I was talking to him this morning, on the federal court system. If anyone, I mean, I, he knows more than anyone in here, right? Um, uh, Lola Benito's the authority on lechon, from what I've heard. How to, how to cook it, right? And so we have different people, maybe you have a realm of authority that you, that you have, you know, and maybe in this circle, you're the authority on that, on that particular topic. Uh, today we're, we're continuing, remember we've been thinking about the authority of Jesus and, and how he comes and he proclaims his authority on, on all things. And here in this passage, you're going to see just the wisdom of Jesus and, and the authority of, of what, he, what he understands about the scriptures and how, what they teach, the way that he uses the, the Old Testament to make points to answer these objections that people are bringing to him. And we're going to find this, that Jesus is the final authority on the future resurrection. I think that's what, what Luke is saying. Jesus is the final authority. He's the one that can speak with the most pure authority on the final coming resurrection. And since life after death is something we all need to think about, then we need to hear from Jesus who is the final authority. And where else would you want to go to find out about life after death? You want to go to the universe's foremost authority on the final resurrection, Jesus. And Jesus is going to teach us some wonderful truths about that future resurrection. And so I want to jump right into the passage. Before we do, just think about um, last week we watched as spies came from the religious leaders. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to trap Jesus in a question. And their question had to do with paying taxes to Caesar. Well, this week a new group shows up, first time in the book of Luke, and it's the Sadducees. And they are trying to undercut the authority of Jesus with a different question. And this question is about the future resurrection. We're actually going to see then next week, if you look ahead in verses 41 through 45, that Jesus has a question for everyone. They've been asking him questions, and now Jesus in turn is going to ask them one. But let's look at this passage, Luke 20, and I want to start reading in verse 27. There came to him, to Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore... Whose wife will the woman be? 
for the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So back right there in verse 27, we find that some Sadducees came to Jesus, and they are described by Luke as being those who deny that there is a resurrection. Not real big on puns, but I think it's required that you say that's why they're so sad, you see. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but I had to. Um, but that's that's what they deny the resurrection. So by resurrection here, though, we're not talking about like Lazarus's resurrection or the resurrection of Jesus, which obviously hadn't happened yet, so they couldn't deny that. But we're talking about the future resurrection. We're talking about the the afterlife, the fact that after death there is something else. So the Sadducees denied that there was anything after this life. That when you die, that's it. Their favorite song was John Lennon's song, Imagine. You remember that? Where he says, Imagine there is no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That's the Sadducees. That's their favorite song. In Acts, uh, in Acts 23, 8, we're told further that, that they didn't, they didn't not just believe in the resurrection, they also didn't believe in angels. And they didn't believe in spirits. This was unlike the Pharisees and unlike most of the other Jewish believers in that day that all, that believed in all of those things. So the Sadducees are, are materialists. They believe in what is here and now, and they deny um, anything beyond this present physical existence. Part of that was because most people say they held solely to the Torah, to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what they said was the final authority. And in those writings of Moses, they didn't see any reference to a future resurrection, so they rejected the thought of it. Now, a part of the other reason may be that they were, they were culturally and religiously elite in that day. They were in close ties with the Romans, and they received a lot of benefits from Rome's rule. And so, in part, their denial of the resurrection is tied to this fact that life's pretty good. When, when things are going pretty well, people don't really see the need for believing in, in some sort of afterlife. They were, they were comfortable. And they also didn't like Jesus talking about the future because it was upsetting the present rule of Rome, which, again, they were very comfortable under. That's how some people are in our day, isn't it? Maybe your relatives or your coworkers or some celebrity you've heard talk. They're, they're living for today because today is, is all that they believe that there is. And that's very easy for people who have it pretty well on earth, that, that things are going pretty well, and so I don't need to think about an afterlife because I'm pretty happy right now. And, and we can start thinking that way too. Even if we're Christian, maybe you're not a Christian and you don't believe there's an afterlife. Well, let's go to Jesus and see what his authoritative word on that is. But even we who are Christians sometimes live as if there is no afterlife, that, that we live for the present. We don't deny the resurrection of the dead in our statement of faith, but we, all, we might deny it with how we live our lives. 
Well, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus, and they ask him a question. It's a question that's rooted in the Old Testament law, and they choose this law. It's the law of the called the, the Leverite marriage. It's described in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Let me just read what it says there so you get a feel for it. This is straight from, from the law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. This is the reason. That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man, this is the brother, does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elder and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall say, she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now you don't want to be called the man, the house of the man who had his sandal pulled off. That's a, that's a bad thing. You don't want to be that. Now we find a positive example of this in the, the story of Ruth. In Ruth chapter 4 with Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer. In Genesis 20, 38, you can look there, we find a ne- negative example of one of Judah's sons named Onan, and you can read that. So this is something that was taught in the Old Testament. However, in Jesus' day, it really wasn't practiced very widely. That's not to say that it shouldn't have been, but simply to say that this question is purely academic. It has no bearing on anyone's regular life in this moment. And the point of asking this question about this obscure law is purely to trap Jesus. That's the whole point. It's an academic question intended to make Jesus and anyone else who believes in the resurrection look like fools. So they come up based on this law with an extreme scenario. Not impossible, but highly unlikely. And it's, it's the tale of um, one bride for seven brothers. Maybe you know the, the movie that's sort of loosely based on that. So there's seven brothers. We'll give them names. We'll call them, you know, Adam, and Adam, Benjamin, Caleb, Daniel, Ephraim, Frank, and Gideon. That's a joke for some people. So Adam marries a young girl, and, and they don't have children, and he dies. And so Benjamin marries this Adam's widow, and they have no children. And so it goes all the way down the line, and they all marry this woman, and no one has any children. And then the woman dies. So the question of the Sadducees is that when these seven brothers are resurrected and this one wife is resurrected, what are they going to do? Whose wife is she? The assumption is that if one of them would have had a son or a daughter by this wife, then then the wife would be joined to that one. But since none of them did, they don't know what to do. So the hope is that they're going to show how incompatible the law of Moses is with a belief in the resurrection, and therefore make Jesus and the absurdity, show the absurdity of some sort of future resurrection. So you can kind of hear them laughing. They're asking this question, and they say, it says there, they say, um, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? And they're kind of snickering. They're laughing. You know, they're giving high fives to each other. We got him trapped now. He has no idea how he's going to answer this. So again, we ask, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to deny the law of Moses? Is he going to deny a future resurrection? 
Is he going to cop out and just say, well, I don't really know? Or is he going to answer authoritatively their question? Is he going to use the scriptures and, and who he is as the word of God to say this is what is true about the future resurrection? We see Jesus' great wisdom just to watch how he masterfully uses scripture and his own knowledge given to him by God as God to tell them what the answer to this question is. And he can speak with certainty about the things that are going to come. Unlike you and I, I don't fully know everything that's coming, but Jesus fully knows what the resurrected state will be like. So let me summarize his answer with a, with a few um, statements. The first one is this. He says, this age and the age to come are distinct and different. This age is what's referred to there in, in verse 34, the sons of this age. And then in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. So there's this age and there's that age. There's the, the present time and there is the future time. There's the time before death and there is the time after death. And for most people in Jesus' day, they assumed that these were pretty much a one-to-one sort of thing. It's a little different after the resurrection, but for the most part, it's, it's a lot the same. For us, when we think about the future resurrection, you, the typical understanding is some sort of strange place with, with clouds and harps, and, and, and we're, we're floating as either angels or, or some sort of disembodied spirit. That's what we think about. But in their day, it seems that they thought it was pretty much another physical existence, pretty much similar to where we are at right now. So who's right, us or them? Ultimately, we really, we really don't fully know. We, we know that we will have resurrected bodies. We know that that is our hope. We will have some kind of physical existence. We know that our ultimate home is not heaven, and our ultimate hope is not to be spirits without bodies, but actually to have resurrected bodies and to live in the physical kingdom of God. That, that, is, that is our hope. The details of that, we can work out some of them, and Jesus is going to speak to some of that, but Jesus' point here seems to be that there are shadows right now of what that future life will be like, but it is not a one-to-one correlation. These things are distinct and very different. You and I might assume, if we didn't know any better, that living on Mars would be very similar to living on Earth. I mean, they're both round, they're both planets, they're in the same solar system with the same sun. So we could assume that they've got to be fairly similar, because they are very similar. But in actuality, they're vastly different. Now, I'm not saying the eternal state is going to be like living on Mars. I don't think it'll be at all like that. But, but the idea that they are similar in a sense says we can guess sort of what it will be like, but do we fully know what that age will be like? Jesus is saying this age and that age are distinct and very different. So we can't assume that an argument like the the Sadducees are making based on the present condition, the way that things are, that 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 kind of an argument on current realities has any bearing on the legitimacy of a resurrection in that age. Because they are not a one-to-one correlation. And then specifically, Jesus brings out the idea of marriage. So this age and the age to come are distinct and different. And secondly, marriage is for this age, but not for the next. Their whole idea is based on marriage transcending into the next age. And Jesus says authoritatively, marriage is for now, but it is not for then. So Jesus says that their assumption is wrong, so their whole argument against the resurrection doesn't stand. 
He says that those who are st- enter into the glory of the resurrection, they will not marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Now that's hard, because marriage is such a key component of our present day life. It's a God-ordained institution. It's a gift for right now. We can hardly imagine a world without marriage. How could there be a world without marital love, without procreation, without the having of children? Mother's Day is rooted, in fact, in marriage in so many ways. But Jesus says that in the age to come, marriage will pass away. And he tells us why in verse 36. So he says in verse 35, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Verse 36, for or because they cannot die anymore. That's why. So in some way, the death of death means the ceasing of marriage. Why is that? Let's get to it. We'll get to the reason why in a moment. But to get there, let's think about the purpose of marriage. What is the God-ordained purpose of marriage? First of all, I'm not going to, we won't exhaustively say it, but one of the reasons that we see in the Genesis account is for companionship. So God parades all the animals in front of Adam. There's not a helper suitable for him. And so he creates Eve and gives her to Adam as a means of companionship. It's, it's a unique relationship to help Adam walk through life. It's not the only form of companionship that God has given us, but it is a unique one. And along with that companionship, that purpose, God has created marriage to bring enjoyment. So companionship is one purpose. Enjoyment is another. Which is true of every gift that God has given us, isn't it? Every gift that God gives is for our joy, And and marriage is no exception. It is for our good. Another key purpose of marriage is found in Genesis when God says to Adam and Eve, you need to be fruitful and multiply. And so one of the creation principles of the purpose of marriage is procreation, having children. Marriage is instituted by God for that purpose. Now, some marriages have children and some do not. And a marriage without children does not mean it is not a marriage. But rather just to say that when God joins people together, in general, the purpose is for them to have children. And so, as a general rule, let me say two things just briefly. As a general rule, I'm going to say these things and you can talk to me afterwards about them because I don't want to get too sidetracked. But as a general rule, every marriage should be open to the gift and the responsibility of children. Because it is at the core of the purpose of marriage. There are extenuating circumstances. There are different things that happen in different relationships. But as a general rule, I think that's part of what marriage is. And then in our debate that's going on in our country about the definition of marriage, doesn't the fact that God says part of the purpose is for the procreation of more children, doesn't that have something to say about what the purpose and the definition of marriage is? And a marriage in which it is totally impossible for that to happen is not marriage. So the the purpose of procreation then is at the is at the heart of Jesus's argument here in verses 35 through 36. He's saying that if people can't die anymore, then there is no more need for procreation. Because in that day the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and it's going to be filled with the people of God. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled up with the redeemed people of God, glorifying him for all eternity. So marriage is not necessary anymore because God has, as the song says, filled up the role of his elect. He's, he's, he's got everyone in. 
the, the place is full as far as what God is concerned. So the future state is similar to this one, but it's also very different because marriage is for this age, but it's not for the next age. So if you're married, the thought that that marriage will not be existent in the eternal state may be a sad thought for you. If it's not a sad thought, that's another discussion we probably need to have. But I, I can remember early in Andrew and I's marriage looking at this passage and thinking, I don't really want to talk about this because... We love each other, and, I, and I, I enjoy my wife, and I don't want to think about life apart from my wife. How can it be heaven if my, I'm not married? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's interesting because that it's, marriage is such a, a source of joy and companionship. Even, even thinking about the physical union of marriage is such a part of, our, of, of what God has created that to imagine a world without that, is strange to us. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard to imagine. But think about what Jesus is saying here. He, he, he's saying that we need to realize that in the eternal state, that the gifts that God has given will in fact supersede and surpass even marriage, one of the greatest gifts that he has given. So much so that it won't even be necessary anymore. The companionship of marriage that we enjoy will pale in comparison to our companionship with Christ. And not only that, but with all other people. Think about relationships where there is no sin, in you or in them, and the union that we will have with one another as the family of God. The the enjoyment of marriage will be nothing compared to what God has in store for us. Will I still know my spouse in a unique way? I, I think so. I think so, but we will also know others apart from that reality of sin. We will be fully loved, and we will love fully. And, and procreation will no longer be necessary because we never die. I think that's interesting to think about, that there will be no more physical union between men and women. Our culture glorifies physical intimacy, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying it is non-existent in heaven because of the greater joys that will be there. Not because it's sinful, but but because it is only a taste of the joy that will be a part of the eternal state. Because what's what's the great purpose of marriage? Isn't it to show us the union between Christ and his church? And, And in that, it's to reflect the relationship of Christ and his church. A relationship that we know now, but we will know fully when he returns. And marriage and all of its joys are intended not to be the source of our joy, but are to be a reflection of the greater joy that we can know in Christ and that we will know fully at the resurrection. So the absence of of the companionship and the enjoyment and the intimacy of marriage may seem sad even, but the, the sadness just shows us that we have no idea of the joys that await us, that there are joys for all of God's people. We think now there are those who are married and, and know that, and there's those who are not. In heaven, there will be no distinction in that. We will all participate completely in the joy that God has for us. So just let me give you some application, and then we'll move on from this thought. But I would say if, if you're married today, then enjoy the gift that God has given, this gift of companionship, this gift of of enjoyment, this gift of physical intimacy. Enjoy the gift of children even today on Mother's Day. But don't enjoy them as the greatest of all blessings. 
Rather, enjoy the blessings of marriage as a reflection of what God is going to give us in the future state. And, and I think we should pause often, those of us who are married, and when we have joy, to pause and to say, this is great, but it's nothing compared to what we will know when we are with Christ. Of course, there are times when marriage is disappointing, isn't it? When marriage isn't all it's cracked up to be, when, when family is not as fun as we want it to be. And that dissatisfaction often rises from our sin, but it's also a reminder that, that your spouse or your children are not intended to satisfy your deepest desire. That, in fact, if we do that, if I, if I get upset at my wife because she is not making me fully happy, I'm turning her into an idol. She is a gift from God, but who ultimately is to satisfy me? God is. And so I can take the dissatisfaction that I feel in anything and say, but I will not be dissatisfied in heaven. I will be fully filled with joy. I'd say if you're not married, that there's a, a foretaste of heaven in the family of God, in the, in the joy of being a part of the family of brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but also that, that joy along with that absence of marriage should be a reminder that one day marriage won't even exist. And we will all fully know the joy of being one in Christ. We will all be this joy-filled family. We will all be the bride of Christ. And we will be fully satisfied in him together. So if you're not married, what you desire to be, don't idolize marriage as this thing that's going to bring ultimate satisfaction. If you're a young person and, and, and you start thinking about romantic relationships... And we buy into this lie that that's what we live and die for. Jesus is saying, that won't even exist in heaven. Don't live and die for that. Romantic relationships, physical intimacy, they cannot bear the weight of the desire for joy that we have. Only God can. And he will when we are with him. So every joy in this life is to point us to the greater joy that we find now and that we will find fully in Christ. And every trial and difficulty should make us long for the day when there is no more pain, there is no more death, and we are fully satisfied in Christ. So marriage doesn't even exist because everything is so much greater. Let me be clear about one more thing that Jesus is saying here. Third, that not everyone in this age will know the blessings of the next. Not everyone in this age will know the blessings of the next or of that age. Every person who has ever lived is a part of this age, right? I mean, you're in this age, so you're a part of this age. But in the age to come, there will be those who attain to this glorious resurrection to life, and there will be those who die forever. Many in our day assume that, that if you're a part of this age, you will be a part of the next. That the only thing that has to happen for you to get from this age to the eternal blessing of that age is that you die. That's not to say that some people live forever forever, and other people don't live forever. Everyone lives forever. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said so poignantly. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every person that we come in contact with will live forever, and they will be, as he says, either immortal horrors, 
dying forever, or everlasting splendors, rejoicing with God forever. He says here, those, in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead. And our question should be, how can I be considered worthy? I want to be considered worthy to attain to that age. Our initial response as sinners is to look inwardly, to try to find some way to make myself worthy of attaining to that age. What can I do that will make me worthy? Well, nothing. I read in Psalm 53 this week, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. I can't be worthy on my own, that's for sure. Scripture is very clear about that. But I think Jesus gives us the answer here. He tells us that we want to be found worthy to attain to that age so that we would not die anymore. He says we won't die anymore. Why? Look there in in verse 36. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels. Interesting that Jesus brings up angels in a conversation with who? The Sadducees. What do the Sadducees think about angels? That there are none. (laughs) Mild rebuke there from Jesus. They are equal to the angels. The point being that probably a reference to immortality. That the angels never die and neither will you or I. They are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. I cannot be worthy on my own. But a way that I could be worthy is to be part of a family with someone who is worthy. It's that I become a son of God, a son of the resurrection. So here is what I think Jesus is saying. That the way to attain to the age to come is by union with Christ through faith and repentance, by coming to Christ and finding in Him the worthiness that we need. I am not perfect, and I deserve to die for my sins. So Jesus was perfect for me and paid the penalty for my sins so that I might be worthy, not in and of myself, but because He is worthy. And I come in, as it were, riding His coattails. I am His son. You are His daughter. And we come in, we attain to the resurrection of the dead because Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of the resurrection. He is the firstborn. He is the one who has resurrected and he brings us with him and gives us new life. So Jesus answers this question clearly and authoritatively. And then just for good measure, he turns and he says, and let me prove to you that there is a resurrection. So he dismisses their question, then he says, Let me show you that there is a resurrection. So very quickly, he turns to the future resurrection of the dead, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed that. Now he could have said, that the dead dead are raised, even Job shows that. Job says this in Job 19, 25-26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Isn't that great? He could have quoted Daniel. Daniel 12, 1 and 2, Daniel speaking about the last days, and he says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel speaks of the resurrection. King David speaks of the resurrection in Psalm 16. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But where does Jesus go? He goes to Exodus. They came to him speaking about Moses. And so he comes to them speaking about Moses because that's who they believed. And he says, even Moses said there's a resurrection. Can you imagine what that would be like to a Sadducee? I mean, that's a that's a twist of the knife, as it were. I mean, he's just shot them down, and now he says, even Moses says there's a resurrection. And what does he say? He says, um, there in verse, um, verse 37, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, he couldn't say Exodus 3 because there was no Exodus 3 at that point, but in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead but of the living, for all live to him. He points out that God reveals himself as the God currently of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, when God is speaking to Moses, these guys are long gone. They have passed on. They are dead. But but God is saying that these patriarchs long dead, that he is still presently their God. Even though they are physically dead, they are alive to God, it says there, for all live to him. Or another way to, to say it is, for to him all are alive. I love that. To God all are alive. Death is the end for no one. God is, is so much so the God of the living that in fact it is bound up in the name that he calls himself by. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that idea of present reality of future resurrection is bound up in the very name that God calls himself by. If we are in Christ, then this is a wonderful thing to know, isn't it? Death is not the end for us. Death, of all things, you think could separate us from God, but it cannot. Not even death can separate us from God because to God all are alive. And if we have faith in Christ, in Jesus, our resurrected Savior, then he will take us when we die to our Father's house. And we will know all the joys of the kingdom for all eternity. Death cannot separate you from God if you are in Christ. For to him all are alive. And all who have gone before us, isn't this encouraging, are alive. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob and the God of everyone else who has died in him. And we are to be comforted by that. You can say that that is God's name, that God is the God of that person, and they are still alive in him. And if God is your God through Christ, you can say God is the God of Andy, and he will always be, and death will never separate me from God if I am in Christ. You know, we have a lot to rejoice in, to think about this future resurrection, to think about the eternal state. And we don't understand all of it, do we? I mean, it's, there's shadows, but it is distinct. And it is different. But we know it will be greater than even what we know now. And I think part of Luke's main point, again, is this authority of Jesus. Jesus is revealing his wisdom in contrast to the foolishness of men and women. And Jesus speaks with authority on the word of God, and he speaks authoritatively as the word of God, I will tell you what the resurrection will be like, because I am God. You cannot stump me on this. I've got it down. And so in verse 39, what do they say? Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Now the scribes, it doesn't say the Sadducees said that. The scribes said it, why? Because they believed in the resurrection. 
And even the scribes who were trying to trap him had to say, that was good teaching. <laughs> they, they took a step back and said, wow, this guy knows what the word says and he speaks with authority, unlike us. And then it says they no longer dared to ask him any questions. You know, we said last week questions are good. We shouldn't be afraid of asking God hard questions. That, that, that's, God can handle that. But even think about what we saw in, in Exodus this morning, that there are excuses, excuses, excuses that Moses makes. And then at some point God says, just go out there and do it. And I think to a certain extent that's what's happening in this passage, is that he's answered, he's answered, he's answered. And then they no longer ask him any questions, because there's nothing else to ask. So there's a time to close our mouths. There's a time to make a decision about what we think about who Christ is and what he says. There's a time to say that Jesus has answered every question that we have authoritatively. He's done it through his life. He's done it through his teaching. He's done it through his death. He's done it through his resurrection. He's done it through his ascension. He's done it in the sending of the Spirit. He's done it in the giving of the Word of God. So we can come up to him and we can, we can hear what he has to say authoritatively. And we can close our mouths and walk away. Or we can say what Peter said, right? We can close our mouths and say, where else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of what? Eternal life. Jesus speaks authoritatively on the future resurrection. And if we are in him, then we will be with him for all eternity, enjoying the joys of that place. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word to us. And then I will close this in prayer. Jesus, we worship you this morning. We worship you as the word of God, as the great and final prophet, Lord. We worship you as the one who speaks authoritatively into our lives. Would you speak authoritatively on this future resurrection? And even thinking about the fact that, that your blood speaks authoritatively on our behalf. It pleads for us before your throne. Even now as we are praying, God, your blood is saying that we are worthy to be accepted, not because of any good we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And you are speaking even on our behalf right now. Lord, thank you for the authoritative word and life of Jesus. And thank you for this word of encouragement, this hope of future resurrection. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who is lost, who, who if they died, would not be resurrected to life eternal, but would die forever. Lord, I pray that they would repent and put their faith in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are in you, let us live with hope. Let us enjoy all the good gifts that you have given us. But let all the good gifts that even we enjoy today, let them point us to Christ and to that future resurrection when all of this earth will pale in comparison to the joys that we will know. But thank you for the truth that after our skin is destroyed, we will see you. For all this in Jesus' name, amen.